When you think of Philadelphia, what images come to mind? You can even shout some out now. I don't care. Cheesesteaks. What else? Eagles Parade. What else? Pretzels. Okay. You don't have to raise your hand. Just put it out there. Friendly, helpful people. Yes. Oh, there's some disagreement. What else? Rocky. All right. City of brotherly love and sisterly affection, right? Which park? Fairmount Park. All the parks. Water ice. Mass transit. Where's Eric? Is he here today? That's a good list. What? The Liberty Bell. Right. So, and I I asked this question knowing that this is a great time (laughs) to ask this question because right now when I asked it, I think a lot of you probably thought of green and parades and high fives and chants and jerseys and lots of celebration. And after winning the Super Bowl, Philly Pride, I think, is probably at an all-time high in the 15-plus years that I've lived here. It's like through the roof, which is awesome to see. But it hasn't always been that way. Am I right? So a few years ago, I remember reading an article in Philadelphia Magazine, right? So if they say something about Philly, it's got to be true, right? Or not, but it's interesting to read. So they uh, tagged the 100 greatest moments in the city of Philadelphia. So it wasn't the greatest moments. It was more like the most influential moments. And number seven on the list was the 1964 Phillies, which predates a lot of us here. But, <laughs> but if you don't know the story, in 1964, the Phillies uh, got out to a very large lead. Um, and with 12 games left, proceeded to lose 10 in a row and blow a six-game lead. And they lost uh, the pennant to the Cardinals. And after that event, uh, according to Philadelphia Magazine, uh, that uh, the psyche of people who live in Philadelphia have, had forever been seared with that experience that uh, there was an, as they say, quote, undeniable, unshakable truth, we lose. We deserve to lose. We're losers. We must embrace losing. Okay? Don't, I didn't say that. That's, those aren't my words. And I would say, well, of course, we just learned not at all. Right? Right? I'm looking for some feedback. Yes. So, but also, growing up in small town uh, mid-America, I have to admit uh, that when I was a kid and I thought of Philadelphia, the first image that popped to my mind were from, was from the opening credits of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You guys remember that show? Some of you saw it live. Some of you watched it in syndication. And in that show, Philadelphia, particularly West Philadelphia, was portrayed as a place that no one would want to live. Do you remember that? And its culture was portrayed in a very negative light. We had it bad in Philly, but they had it good in California. Uh, And so, granted, 90 sitcoms, probably not the best source of information. But I wonder sometimes if, you know, Mayor Kenny ought to fire or ought to sue NBC for defamation of character. Because for years and years, everyone could quote that song and see the images behind it in a negative light. And it was only by moving to Philadelphia and living here um, that I realized that really none of that was true, and I've been able to see something more real. Um, and even a little bit ago, for seminary, I was working on a project where I had the opportunity to do interviews with people on Baltimore Avenue. And so 
uh, I remember talking to this one gentleman, and he said, well, if you really want to understand this neighborhood, you should check out this mural uh, down on 48th Street, and that'll give you if, uh, a good picture of who we really are. So uh, he said, quote, that's our neighborhood. So I, I, I went there yesterday, and I, I, I took a few pictures, and I'd like to show them to you. And I think what you'll see is not only does this mural contain you know, features that have commonly uh, been identified with West Philadelphia, so row homes, green line trolleys, but it also includes this incredibly diverse collection of people from all types of backgrounds who weren't troublemakers like the opening uh, to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So let's see what we got here. So this is the mural. It's actually a two-sided, so you're in a parking lot, and there's one on this side and one on this side. This is one. You can see people from all over uh, different backgrounds. Uh, you can see row homes and, and different things like that. Can you show me the next one? Here's a little close-up. Everybody's happy and smiling. Um, someone, people holding their babies, uh, walking with their coffee. Um, can you show me the next one? There is another, that's the other side. You can see people on their bicycles. Show me one more. So you got hipsters there too. Can you show me the next one? And just basically, you know, people planting trees together. It's this very beautiful picture of like uh, harmony of a community that's come together from all different sorts of backgrounds. And, you know, as I stood uh, four or five years ago, sort of looking at the mural that someone sent me down to take a look at, a gentleman actually walked up to me, and he was a, a little rough around the edges. He looked like he might have seen a few nights on the streets. Uh, and he, but he looked at me, and he said, pointed right up to the mural, and he said, you see that guy painted between those two cars? He said, that's me. And he went on to say that all the, peature, all the people featured in the mural were actually real people from the neighborhood that the artist used as a subject of his work. Actually, yesterday, when I went and took pictures again years later, um, somebody walked up to me, you know, and said, isn't this beautiful? Don't you love this mural? So there's a lot of pride in the neighborhood about this mural. So what's the truth? Is Philly a crime-ridden, dangerous city to be abandoned, or an idyllic urban oasis of peace and harmony? Yeah, <laughs> someone just said yes. Or maybe something in between. And to be honest, like, I'm so biased. Like, I don't know what the real, I, I, I can tell you what my opinion is. And I think it's much more, I don't think it's uh, uh, the Garden of Eden, but I think it's much more to that end. But I'm biased. So what I want to do in this series to kick things off is take a look and see um, how in the Bible cities in general are described. Because I have been in environments growing up in a small town Midwest where the picture of cities and even the way that people talked about how cities are viewed in the Bible was like predominantly negative, which makes sense because we were living in small town Illinois. And the people who live in small town Illinois probably made choices to live there. They made choices not to live in a city. But what's the truth? Where is it? Where are we on the spectrum? And here, let me just give you a spoiler alert. Uh, I really think it's time to celebrate Philly. And I love the fact that we just had a parade. I love that we won the Super Bowl. I love that it gave people a chance to identify in a positive way with living in the city because this is a fantastic place to live. And that's going to be a major theme as we go through this, that cities are God's idea. And we'll get to that in a little bit idea. And that this is a, a God-blessed place to be. Um, but we're also going to talk about how things could be better. 
um, because we're not wanting to just bury our heads in the sand and pretend like everything is peace and harmony. As encouraging as that mural is, I think there's a lot of truth there, but it may be a little over the top about what reality is, as art has the freedom to do and be. So we're going to talk about that. So for the next five weeks, we're starting a new series called 40 Days for Philly. This is our Lenten series. And not only am I talking about these themes on Sunday, but hopefully you like this sermon. You'll want to come back for the next five. But also you'll want to join up with our small groups, which are going through a packet that goes with this series. So the themes we're talking about here, they're going to build on during the week. And for the next six weeks, uh, it's a great time to check out a small group, even if you just do it for six weeks. Because one, I think the content's going to be awesome. And two, I'm always telling you guys, try out one of these small groups because I want you to have friends. And I want you to have a sense of community. And that's one of the major ways we try and help that happen in the lives of people in our church. So it's a fantastic time to join up with a small group. On our chalkboard in the lobby, you can see all of them. You can look on the back of your bulletin. And there's one that's just starting for this uh, six-week period, too. So today, we start by looking at a story that is full of this tension of, is the city a cesspool or is it wonderful? And we're going to look at that today. All right, so uh, let me give you a little background before we jump into the pet. Sound interesting? Yeah? You guys want to go on another parade? Awesome. All right, start praying for the Sixers. They need it. No, I'm sorry. They're on the rise. Trust the process. Trust the process. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> no, man, no. I shouldn't, I, anyway, I better move on. All right, so the action of this story centers on the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, I don't think even exists anymore, but back in the day, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire and one of the most prominent cities in the entire world. In fact, uh, in, in the, the, the passage, we can't read the whole book that we're looking at today, but before our story today, uh, Nineveh is described as a very important city, but it's also described as being full of, quote, evil and, quote, violent ways. So it's evil and violent, and in fact, at the beginning, it has evil and violent ways, um, and that at the beginning of the story, it's so bad that God is thinking of overturning the city. Uh, but before he does that, uh, he sends a prophet to warn them, Okay. And this prophet's name is Jonah. Heard of Jonah? Watch Veggie Tales. You know, you know Jonah, though, is this, he's a prophet, but he refuses to go. He won't go to Nineveh. He, he knows God's son, but he refuses to go. And so he runs in the opposite direction. He gets on a boat, and he tries to sail out as far away into the Mediterranean Sea to avoid Nineveh. And if you've heard this story before or heard of it, what, you know what happens. There's this huge storm um, Jonah's like, it's my fault. We're in this storm. Throw me overboard. They won't do it. They throw everything else overboard. And finally, like, well, what do we got to lose? We're going to drown anyway. They throw Jonah over the side. The seas calm, and Jonah gets swallowed by a giant fish. Heard this before? The giant fish barfs him off into the seashore, and he says, all right, I guess, God, after all that, I'll go to Nineveh. So it's a long road to Nineveh for Jonah. He doesn't want to go there. Uh, and this is where we pick up the story, because Jonah preaches to Nineveh, and this amazing thing happens. There's this crazy revival, and, and the city turns from evil and violence and to the Lord, and there's this renewal that happens, even the king. And so we pick it up after all of this goes down in Jonah uh, chapter 4. 
And after all this happens, it says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord... God provided a gourd and, it, and made it grow up over Jonah to shade him for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the gourd. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the gourd so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the gourd? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I was dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this gourd. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And, it sh and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and, and also many animals? And it seemed, oh, well, that's in <laughs> That's in the passage. The next is my notes. Sometimes when you turn the page, you start reading it like it's still the Bible. No, it's not. Just my thoughts. So it seems to me <laughs> that one thing this passage does is give us a baseline to start with for this whole series, a foundational way, if you will, a starting point in our discussions about how to view cities in general, and I think in specific, Philadelphia. And this baseline, this place to start, on the way that is, you can see in the way that God chooses to refer to Nineveh. And whenever God chooses an adjective to describe Nineveh, he chooses one word, great. Great. Now the ways of the city are sometimes referred to as wicked, violent, and evil, but the city itself is referred to as great. And the word great here is an important word. It's the Hebrew word gadol. You don't have to remember that. Uh, and it has a double meaning. It means both big and important. And in fact, other places in the Bible, this word is used to describe God himself. So God chooses a name that's often used to explain who he is to describe cities. Great. Great. That's what God thinks about cities. That's where he starts. There's no confusion for him. Cities are great. They can be corrupted. They can be violent. They can have violent ways. But in their essence, in their being, cities are great. God loves cities. But what's so great about them? Now, to answer this question, there's one key parallel or metaphor or thing that happens in this passage we read, and that is this gourd that grows up and provides shade and it's, it's a it's, it is a gourd, but it's also put in comparison or in relation to the city of Nineveh. So we can learn a lot about the city of Nineveh by the way God talks about this gourd and what happens with it. So in verse 10, it says, But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this gourd, 
Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? The first thing I like us to notice is that cities are a divine idea. Cities are God's idea. God said to Jonah about the gourd, You've been concerned about this gourd, though you did not tend it or make it grow. And the implication of this statement is that just as God is the one who tended and made the vine grow, God is also the one who has tended and made Nineveh grow, over, although over a much longer time and with much more care. And this is a theme throughout the entirety of Christian scripture. The, ideas, the idea is that cities were not humanity's idea, but God's. God's great intention is to bless people with cities. So the Bible famously starts in the Garden of Eden, but it ends in a city. And the redemption and healing of all of humanity is described or personified or illustrated in the idea and the picture of a city. In Revelation 21, it says, I saw the holy city. This is the end. This is where everything comes together in the best possible way. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And, you know, when you've had the idea and invested in something, it's special to you, isn't it? When you've had the idea and you've invested in something, it's special to you. You know, this collection of people, you're very special to me because 15 years ago, Beck and I had an idea. And we haven't been perfect, um, but we've put our heart, our soul, our sweat, our tears into this community. It's special to us. You know, when people have come through and caused damage, we've not been happy about that. You guys matter to us. Think about something in your life that you created from scratch. It means something to you. And the longer you've invested in it, the more it means to you. That's how God feels about cities. They're his idea. He plants them. He helps them grow. He invests in them, just like Nineveh. They're special to him. Also, cities are full of people. Verse 11, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people? God loves people. He loves all kinds of people. He loves all different shapes and sizes. He loves the different cultures and distinctions of people. We are his greatest work of art. You know, in, in the first chapter, first couple chapters of the Bible, when, when the story of God creating everything is told, he creates all kinds of things, rainbows, sunsets, you know, animals. And he says it's good, 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 right? The stars in the sky. And then he creates humanity. And he very famously says, and it was very good. We're like his masterpiece. It says in the Bible that we're created in the image of God, that his thumbprint is on every one of us. There's something of God in you. And the more we become like God, the more human we become. It's a good thing. People are a good thing. 
And rainbows are spectacular. Sunsets are awe-inspiring. The Grand Canyon is breathtaking. But you, those are good. You are very good. A greater miracle. Blessed with the image of the divine. And sometimes I think we miss this. You know, even in the books that people write about God, what do they put on the covers? Sunsets. Splashing waves. You know, uh, the stars in the sky. Beautiful things. If we were more in tune with what makes God smile, if we had a book about desiring God or prayer or something, you know what might be on the cover? Philadelphia. The skyline. Local park, Malcolm X Park. People getting along, doing things together. That's what go on there. And maybe a page inside, you might have a picture of the Milky Way galaxy. I don't know. But what I get from the story is that we're his most valued work of art. He loves people. And so the cities of the world are full of lots of people. And that's the great advantage that the city has over the countryside, more people. More people means cities are incredibly diverse with people from around the world. And when different ideas and cultures bump into each other, this convergence, this coming together of diversity results in great creativity, which reflects who God is. You know, if one person reflects a little, then how much more would 120,000 people or 1.4 million? With all these people reflecting different parts of who God is, the whole picture becomes great. But you may have noticed it's not just the people. And so consider how this line of scripture ends. It says, Should I have not concern for Nineveh, which there are lots of people uh, who cannot tell the right hand from their left, and also many animals. Now, when I read that, sometimes it made, made me smirk a little bit. It's like, oh yeah, and the animals. Um, and I found it interesting that God mentions animals or cattle, depending on your translation, along with people as a reason for caring about the city. And though I think there's a huge theme in the scripture about God caring about the environment. Um, and he definitely, we just talked about how he said nature is good. I don't think animals are listed here because they're like quite as important as people. Because I think there's a message here of people being like uh, his ultimate expression. Um, but the combination of diversity, creativity, and resources is what makes the city special. In that day and age, animals were resources. They were capital. They were um, the ability to create, to care for, to feed. Animals that day represented resources, and cities have more resources than any other place. You think about it. Cities produce culture. Cities create and define culture. Where the city goes, so goes the culture. I wish I had more time to talk about this, but if you think about Los Angeles, a big city, right? Think about the influence that Los Angeles has with film and television. Anybody watched anything on Netflix in the last, uh, I'll even give you the last month, let alone the last hour. Like, what'd you do before you came this morning? <laughs> Seriously, oh, I just got to get one more in. Just what? I just got, you know, uh, New York and fashion. I mean, so many, San Francisco. Silicon Valley, um, and all of the culture that's come out of the internet, 
right? And you can't even fathom the difference that cities make uh, in the culture of the entire world. So cities are important. God loves them. He thinks they're great, but are they oases of peace and harmony? Let's go back to God's object lesson in this passage, and this is what I'm calling the worm factor. So one of the implications of this parallel between the city of Nineveh and this vine or this gourd that grows is that just as the worm destroyed the vine, the evil and the violence that's mentioned in Nineveh was sucking the life and the potential out of Nineveh, right? So although the passage isn't specific about what the Ninevites' evil ways and violence were, it's not too hard to imagine. You know, cities face real problems. And to live in the city is to be aware of some of the problems that the city faces. Many of you, if not all of you, have firsthand experience with some of the tougher things associated uh, with city life. So maybe you've had your car broken into. Not that that can't happen anywhere, but it seems more common in a city. Maybe you had your bicycle stolen. Maybe somebody tagged your house. Maybe you've been jumped. Maybe you're a dedicated teacher trying to make a difference, and sometimes you feel overwhelmed. Maybe you hate litter. Maybe you live in a neighborhood where you hear gunshots at night, and you wonder if your kids are going to be safe. You know, in our church, we think of it like this. Philadelphia is a great city, but it could be even better. And here's the good news. Notice that God says to Jonah, quote, you've been concerned about this gourd, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Now remember, God's drawing these parallels between these two things and between the gourd and the city of Nineveh. And one point he's making by this is that Jonah is so upset over a gourd that lived a day, but unfazed about a city that God has tended and made grow for centuries. And the idea here is that God has been investing in this city for hundreds of years. And from that, I think we can take that God is continually investing powerfully in cities. And when Jonah joins with God and invests against what he wants to do even, not even with his heart into it, but invests in Nineveh, God so responds with supernatural power that the culture of an entire city changes. God is invested in Philadelphia. He's been investing at least since Philadelphia became a trading post in 1623. And it seems to me that he is even more aware than we are of the worms that are eating away at his creation. And he is eager to bring renewal and new life to see this great city become even better. That's good news. That's good news for you and me and anyone who loves this city. But how can we tap into that kind of power? Well, I'm going to work backwards here a little bit. I think Jonah makes three mistakes here. And we can learn the positive from his negative. All right? So first, I think he realizes, or he, the one mistake that he makes is that he's living for the wrong thing. So for us, I think what we can learn from this is to be open to change what you live for. So every commentary I read, every sermon I listened to in this passage pointed out the same thing. Chapter 4 is a bit of a shocker, right? 
Jonah's a prophet. His job is to speak the word of the Lord with the hope, one would assume, that people would respond, right? And he's just had the greatest personal success that you could ever imagine for a prophet. And he should be ecstatic. But he says, now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And when Jonah says he'd rather die, what he's really saying is that my life no longer has any meaning. You get that? Why do you want to die? Because you see no point. The thing that I live for is dead. In other words, for Jonah, a prophet of God, something has become more of a God to him than God. You see the irony here? Like, this is not what you would expect. Someone who believes in an all-powerful, all-sustaining, all-providing, he even says, I know you're a good God. He says, I know you're quick to be compassionate. And he says, I have no reason to live after God is who he is. You know, there's a major theme in the scriptures that God is the one who satisfies us. You've probably heard that before. But for Jonah, he's placed something else at the center of his life. Kind of has replaced God with something else. And I think this is what happens in our lives when good things become the thing. I think we can look at Jonah and where he ends up as a cautionary tale for us. He's upset because the capital of Assyria has been spared. He's upset because Assyria is Israel's chief rival and threat. He doesn't want to see them survive and succeed. He wants to see their downfall. They're the enemy. And that's what he's living for, whether he realizes it or not. So he runs from God and tries to avoid God's attempts to save the city. His new God, what he's serving, is the national security of Israel. Now get this. There's nothing wrong with being a patriot. And it's good that Jonah loves his country. But when that good thing becomes the thing, when patriotism becomes racism and bloodlust, he begins to serve it and not God. Let me ask you, is there anything that you must have to be happy? Maybe a good thing that it's fine to desire, but for some reason you can't live without. If so, it can be really helpful to sort of check that. Not call it a bad thing or an evil thing, but just to search for some perspective so that you don't end up in a situation like Jonah where you want to die because actually God's done a good thing. Jonah's a great prophet but can't enjoy his greatest success. To experience the joy that God has for cities, we might want to be open to changing some of our own perspectives. And it seems that it's helpful to live for the right things. Second mistake he makes, he leaves. So my encouragement, stay. (laughs) 
Jonah gets out of Nineveh as soon as he can. Now, part of that is he's afraid that fire and brimstone might fall. But when it doesn't, he just goes to the outskirts. It says, verse 5, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. Now, you might have some of these feelings sometimes. You know, maybe you've grown up in a rough part of the city. Uh, you've been working hard in school, and you're just waiting to get, get out and move on. Maybe you came here for a job, and you've been a little overwhelmed by urban life, and you're thinking, I'll, I'll put in my year or two, and I'll move on. Or maybe you've come for higher education, and you're planning to move as soon as you finish your degree. Or maybe it just seems like life might be a little bit easier in the suburbs. And honestly, all these options might actually be good for you. I don't want to suggest that God wants everyone, as much as he loves cities, to live and work in the city. And I'm not suggesting that because God loves cities, he hates the countryside or small towns. I don't believe that either. Um, Lots of great people don't live or work in Philadelphia. And I get that. Uh, And maybe you're not supposed to be one of those. but, But maybe you're not supposed to be one of those people. So... I'm not saying that to love Jesus or to be a good person, you have to live in the city. I'm not saying that. But what I am suggesting is that when you're considering moving on to the next thing in your life, that purpose and mission be one of the factors or factors that you consider. You know, life is not just about the best job offer or the sunniest climate. And God is the one who has the ability to impart purpose and mission in life. Ask him. As one of the many factors that you will consider, if part of that entails Philadelphia. You know, Jonah continually runs from God's call to Nineveh, and he's miserable for it. And you may be purposed to live in the suburbs, or move out to the West Coast, or Ohio, I don't know. But before you assume, consider And if you're a follower of Jesus or somewhere else in your faith journey, pray, inquire. And whatever the answer is, that's between you and God, and I'm all for it. But I will say there is a danger of of coming to a city. Uh, And that danger, I just want to point out, is that we can use cities sometimes to further our own life without giving back. Sometimes that happens. You notice the third mistake that Jonah makes is that he becomes a spectator. So in verse 5, it says, He went out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. Instead of being spectators, be an investor. Maybe you're only here for a three-year program. Make the most of that three years. Instead of thinking, oh, man, maybe I'm I'm not going to be here in five years. Don't waste the next four Or don't come and just take, invest. Because God loves this city and he has a reason for you being here that goes beyond you. And this type of perspective can keep us from being on the sidelines. And this is what Jonah misses. He becomes a spectator. What role do you have to play in Philly becoming an even better place? Jonah was a preacher. What are you? What do you do well? What do you do well? Could the city benefit from that? And next week, 
I'm going to talk more about that. And we're going to talk about the title of the sermon is Why I'd Be a Fool Not to Invest in Philadelphia. But that's just a teaser. We'll get there next week. Um, but as we wrap up here, let me, I, want, I want to do one thing. There's a major theme here this week is about how this is a great place. And also about how sometimes we get a bad rap here in Philly, which is unfair. So I want to do this little exercise. Just take a couple minutes. In your bulletin, you'll find uh, a blank piece of paper. I think it has some lines where you can write your own thoughts. Found it? I hear a lot of rustling of papers. Here's a question. It's a really easy one. What's your favorite thing about Philadelphia? What is your favorite thing? thing about Philadelphia? The food, the restaurants, the neighborhoods, the porches, the eagles, you know, whatever it might be. What is your favorite thing about Philadelphia? I'll just give you a second to name it. And don't worry, you can have a different favorite thing next week. No one's going to hold you to the, oh no, I can't, you know. It'd be great if you're having trouble choosing, but just choose one. And then the next question is, Why? Why is that your favorite thing about Philly? And what impact does that have on your life? So I'm just going to give you a few minutes. I'm going to stand here. It's going to be quiet. You know, and I'm the one who will probably feel awkward standing in front and not saying anything. But just going to give you a few minutes um, to write. In fact, Andrew, can you play some music? <laughs> a little background music. Take a minute. What is your favorite thing about Philadelphia? Why and what impact does it have on your life? All right, I hope that helped give you a little bit of a head start. Um, but that is just a helpful exercise, I think, to help put in front of us, um, to begin with, uh, an understanding, a connection to what's good about our city and, and how it impacts our lives for the better. So what I'd encourage you to is sometime during this week, maybe take 10 minutes, we have a little space, uh, reconnect to this idea, and then 
actually write out a prayer of thanksgiving to God for putting you here right now or for having you grown you up in the city of Philadelphia. Maybe you're in tune with some of the, the worm factor elements. And uh, what could be most helpful for you, even as we're going to talk about those things, is to first connect to the blessings of the city and the difference that it's made in a good way in your life. Um, and so take this opportunity this week. Find even five minutes or ten minutes uh, to pull this back out, read back over it, pray a little bit, and then write a prayer of thanksgiving. And I think that'll set you up really well for what we're going to talk about the next five weeks. All right? All right, so if you're on the worship team, go ahead and make your way forward. Um, we're about to move into a time of worship through song as a congregation. And so in a minute, um, these folks are going to lead us through songs that are prayers and, and, and shouts and um, praises to God. Um, and so as we, when we get there, I'd encourage you to just express yourself uh, as is natural to you. So for some of you, that's going to be clapping. Some of you, it might be kneeling. Some of you... Um, it'll be singing real loud. Some of you, it'll be uh, taking a moment to reflect. I don't know who you are, um, but I know that God wants to meet you in who you are. So put that out there uh, for him, and I think he'll respond. And also, um, we have a team that prays before the service, and they ask God for impressions about what he's up to in the here and the now. And often they'll have some impressions that will be on point for who you are and where you are. So I'd like to invite uh, the representatives of the prayer team to come on up. I see Mauricio. Um, you're the team. All right, great. So this is Mauricio, and he's going to share a couple of those thoughts. Hello, everyone. Uh, so for this series, the prayer team is focusing on specific neighborhoods of Philadelphia each week. Uh, I'm so lucky to have West Philadelphia as the neighborhood that I was praying for earlier today. Um, and really, I just got a few feelings uh, regarding West Philadelphia, but I also wanted to do a did you know regarding West Philadelphia. Did you know that Woodland Cemetery, that land used to be owned by Alexander Hamilton? Did you know that Philadelphia, especially West Philadelphia, was one of the first areas to really benefit from the invention of the streetcar? And so West Philadelphia was mainly composed of immigrants, but when we developed the streetcar, middle-class families moved out to West Philadelphia because they could use the streetcar to get into Center City. Then, around 50 years ago, West Philadelphia started to experience white flight. And so a lot of the white families left West Philadelphia and the neighborhood became increasingly Afrocentric. Um, and through all of that, you've seen, it, it's been uh, predominantly African-American. Uh. Yeah. And so this has caused a lot of different things in West Philadelphia. Before, there were parts of Osage where the real estate was the most expensive in the country. But as some of you might also remember, there's also parts of Osage that have been a victim to just immense police brutality um, through the bombing. And when you think about those things, it's hard to really make a sense of how to feel about West Philadelphia. Is it going on the up? Is it going on the down? Um, and so while I was praying regarding all of that, I just got that song by David Bowie, Changes, 
time may change me, but I can't trace time is one of the main parts of the uh, chorus. Um, and I just thought that we could take this opportunity to pray for the growth of West Philadelphia, not really trying to place a trajectory of it's going on the up, it's going on the down, which we're so prone to doing, where we set our expectations based off past behavior, but maybe let's set our expectations on our prayers and what we can do each day. So if you would like to join me, I'll be in the prayer alcove. Thank you. All right, let's all stand up. Like I said, if we move along into this time of worship, you want to sit down or kneel or raise your hands or clap. All those are open. But I want to give you a heads up that we'll also be receiving our offering during the first song. Don't let it be a distraction. Actually, it's a great way to worship. Uh, it's what funds everything that happens here, and it's also a way to give back to God from the blessings that he's poured into our lives. So uh, as the plates come by, if you'll put, you can put your gift in there and your Connect card. That would be super awesome. Sing together. I've seen. I've seen grace from the mountains. I felt you there in the valley below. I see.